Hello, and welcome to the Accelerated Culture Podcast, a sonic journey through the vibrant and revolutionary sounds of the 1980s and 1990s. In this podcast, my co-host and I will dive deep into the era of new wave and alternative music, exploring the infectious beats, introspective lyrics, and groundbreaking experimentation that defined a generation and left an indelible mark on the music landscape. Join us as we unravel the stories behind the music that shaped an era. Hello and welcome back to the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori here with my special guest co-host, Scott Free. Hi there, Lori. How's it going? Good. How are you, Scott? You know, I'm having a whole day, but now that we get to talk about this album, I think it's about to get better. Woo! Glad to hear it. <laughs> well, our previous episode, Scott, on disintegration has completely broken all download records for this podcast. We had 200 downloads in the first nine days. Yeehaw! Which is about three times what we normally get. So I guess people really like disintegration. I, I, yeah, I'm going to have to give Disintegration the credit because who the hell am I, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> and, you know, I did ask on that episode, do you remember the tuba sample thing? I said, I, I thought I heard a tuba sample. On and lullaby. I said, on lullaby, right. And I said, if anybody knows, please write in. Well, guess what? We got an email from a guy named Joe. So Joe says, hey, Lori, just found the podcast on Instagram and I love it. Just listen to The Disintegration Show, one of my top five albums ever. And you are correct. There is a bit of tuba in Lullaby, I believe. There's even a clip of Simon playing one in the video. Can't wait to listen to the other shows and catch up. Thank you. Right on. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing in. Fan mail with facts. It's a beautiful one-two punch. Amazing. Yeah. So we hope you like this episode too, Joe. And uh, all our other new listeners who've been tuning in, thank you so much. Welcome. Yeah, glad to have you along for the ride. So, Scott, I am so excited. You have no idea how obsessed I was with this album when it came out in 89. How obsessed were you? I was so obsessed. Okay, we're talking, first of all, about Do Little by the Pixies. I just ate, breathed, and slept the Pixies all through like 89, 90, 91. If you had the misfortune of getting into a car with me, I would insist that you had to play uh, Doolittle. I mean, I was like evangelizing. Funny you should mention it. I had no idea who the Pixies were. And then spring of 89, this album comes out. As was his way, my best friend Rob, who went to another college, showed up at University of Michigan in his car made me get into the car, and as he would often do, put an album in and said, you got to hear this album. And he introduced me to some of the great albums and a couple duds, but Pixies Doolittle, he threw on, and my reaction was, what the hell am I listening to right now? Like, it rocks, but I don't know if this guy can sing. And I'm conflicted on this, but in the years that followed, actually, it only took a couple listens, I was sold, and this has become an album that I've owned on pretty much every format that has existed between then and now, most recently having gotten it on vinyl, uh, which I'm 
happy to have. And it's a great. I, I'm not lying when I say this was life changing for me. And as we talk about some of the songs, I will talk about how it was life changing for me. So the Pixies, they're originally from Boston. Black Francis, or rather back then, Charles Michael Kitteridge Thompson IV. He, they keep referring to him in interviews as Charles. I'm like, who the fuck is Charles? Yeah. Black Francis is Frank Black is Charles Michael Kitteridge Thompson the fourth. Anyways, uh, he and Joey Santiago, the guitar player, the guitar player, were neighbors at University of Massachusetts Amherst, and they decided to start a band. Uh, I love this part, that they put out an ad needing a bass player, and it said, and the quote is, bass player who likes Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Husker Du. Tim Deal was the only person to respond to that ad and did not know how to play bass. And they're like, eh, you like our songs? You're in the band. And then she proceeded to learn bass and became one of the more important bass players of the alternative era. Absolutely. And she had been playing guitar, and I think she thought to herself, well, how hard could it be to go from six strings to four? I can tell you from personal experience, it's way easier. To play bass? Oh, yeah. That's not even... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, and, you know, one very interesting thing about her bass technique is she plays with a pick, which most bassists do not do. And it might be because, you know, she started off as a guitar player. So, yeah. Do you know where he got the name Black Francis from? Please. Some interviews said that he was inspired by Iggy Pop. But apparently his father, who was, like, into, like, paganism and stuff like that, had always said that if he had another son, he was going to name the other son Black Francis. And so that's where Charles got the name from. Fascinating. Yeah. Speaking of where they got the names from, do you yes. where they got the name the Pixies from? Didn't they just like open up a dictionary and point to a word and that was it? It, it is the classic, let's pick a word at random. And yeah, Joey Santiago opened the dictionary, put it down on the P's and apparently... It was the Pixies from then on. Joey Santiago, by the way, Filipino, my my first Filipino crush, because, you know, my husband is Filipino. Oh. And, and I don't know, something about the eyes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He is on the short list of Filipino rock stars that are rock stars in the U.S. And uh, he's a hell of a guitar player. Yeah, he's he, he's awesome. So uh, it was Charles, Joey, and Kim, and they had no drummer. Indeed. Yeah. So they brought in Kim's twin sister, Kelly, who didn't know how to play the drums. In fact, yeah, Kim paid for airfare to fly Kelly in to give her a tryout in the band. They were from Ohio, right? The deals were from Ohio? Yeah. And uh, Black Francis was like, you're in. We'll take you. And Kelly eventually, overcome with uh, self-doubt, decided she wasn't sure that she could handle being in the band and would rather play music with Kim. Uh, And that led to some great things later. Yeah. So they recruited David Lovering, who was a friend of Kim's husband's. Apparently, they worked at Radio Shack together. And surprisingly, he ended up being the most experienced musician of the four. Yeah, not the splashiest drummer on earth, but uh, he can rock. He can rock. 
so this was their second full-length album. Their first album was not released in the U.S. It was uh, only available as an import, and that was called Surfer Rosa. And they actually had more success in the U.K. than they did in the U.S. at first. They were bigger in England. I would like to put one asterisk next to that. Their first release was the Purple Tape, yes. a series of demos that then were sort of culled down to eight tracks to make Come On Pilgrim. And you can now get the Purple Tape in non-cassette formats. In fact, my girlfriend, uh, Kate, has the Purple Tape on vinyl. And it is really interesting to hear the evolution because some of the songs from the Purple Tape did make it onto later albums. And yeah, it's a big difference once you throw some more serious production money at the effort. Funny you should mention that. This album, Doolittle, cost about $40,000 to make, which was about four times what they spent on their previous album, uh, Surfer Rosa. And this was also their first American release on a major label. They got picked up by Elektra. Yeah, there was a bidding war. Well, right. We, you look at the previous album, which was produced by Steve Albini, who now we think of as like the producer, Chicago Connection, and he's produced tens of thousands of albums at this point. But back then, he was largely doing unknowns and not under his own name. I found this and I thought it was kind of hilarious. Allow me one moment to get to my notes. So uh, Steve Albini had made his name as a part of Big Black. But before producing Surfer Rosa, the only albums that he produced that we might know today were an Urge Overkill album but he was credited as Lil Weed and a Slint album. Yeah, he, did, he wasn't using his own name when he was producing these albums, weirdly. But bigger production budget, uh, 480 and Electra throw money at the project. And Well, 480 was the record label. Electra was uh, the distribution in the U.S. They throw $40,000 at the project and bring on producer Gil Norton who up to this point you would have heard on most notably Echo and the Bunnymen, Ocean Rain, which is an amazing album, but it is a level of polish that you would not yeah. expect to be hearing with what the Pixies had done up to this point. Yeah. And 4AD reportedly chose Gil Norton. He had been working previously with Throwing Muses, so there's another connection there with Kim Deal because Tanya Donnelly, Throwing Muses. You mentioned this this production level that Gil Norton had. So yeah. he actually spent about three weeks with the band in pre-production going over the songs with them, which for them, they, they'd never done that before. And so that was kind of a, a little bit excruciating for them, I think, particularly Charles, because Charles felt like he was repeating himself an awful lot. But I think that ultimately... Gil Norton, I think he did an excellent job with this album because what we do get, yes, it's polished, but it still retains some of that kind of gritty edge that the Pixies are known for. Oh, for sure. It is it is polished. The production values are amazing, but also it's noisy. Like some of Joey Santiago's guitar work is just straight up noise. Yeah. And David Lovering's drums, like I said earlier, beyond competent but just banging the hell out of them sometimes. It doesn't have to be Neil Peart. 
to be good, don't make a face, uh, Neil Peart. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, he's banging the hell out of the drums. It doesn't have to be, you know, technical virtuoso in order to rock, and rock this album does. If I could take one second, there was a quote from Gil Norton uh, that I loved. I, I, I watched and read a lot before this episode, and one of the things that I watched that I'm going to highly recommend is Doolittle 25. It is a video on the making of Doolittle, and it is mostly Joey Santiago and David Lovering sitting on a couch answering questions, some song by song, some generally about the production and the history. Amazing stuff. But Gil Norton also is interviewed at great length. And what he says is uh, the honesty of it and the melodicness of it. I'm not sure that's a word, but all right. The honesty of it and the melodicness of it and the power of the music. I think the simplicity of it as well. There's that thing about being portable and it was a band performance. And I think the way that we went about the recording of it was honest. It was what the band were. I think we rehearsed really well and that came across when you listen to it. It's a band in a room singing songs. And there is one track on the album that we will talk about that is a live performance. It is a single performance and it's incredible. Yes. But even when they were doing overdubbing, even when they were throwing that production money at it and layering and getting multiple voices, multiple guitars, it still has some of that rawness that they then polished a little. Yeah. Yeah. Also worth noting is the song length. So in contrast to our previous episode where we had songs that were eight and nine minutes long, most of the songs on this album are about two minutes or a little bit less. Author Ben Cesario said, they catch your ear just long enough for you to fall in love and then they're over. Yeah, and there's a funny incident that gets reported over and over about this album. And that is that uh, Gil Norton, the producer, was sort of laying into Charles about wanting the songs to be longer, about wanting to repeat that chorus, to do that, repeat that first verse again. And Black Francis was like, we want these songs to be short. I've already said that. Why am I going to say it again? And yeah. went back and forth on this, went toe to toe for a while. And the two of them were going into a Tower Records together because it was the 80s. And that's what you did if you loved music. And Black Francis goes and grabs a record. And Gil Norton's excited to see what this is. And it's Buddy Holly record. And he's like, why Buddy Holly? It doesn't seem like it resonates a whole lot. And Black Francis is like, look at the song lengths. Almost no songs over two minutes long. Why? Because they don't have to be any longer. He already said it. Why is he going to say it again? Two minutes and out. And it's a different time. The 50s was about the two-minute single. And this is the late 80s, and The Cure is making nine-minute songs. But there is something to be said about the short and sweet or short and violent that is a lot of this album. And this kind of puts us in an unusual position with this episode, Scott, because very likely you and I are going to be spending longer talking about the songs yeah. than the duration of the song. Accurate. Yeah, yeah. we're not necessarily short-winded on this. Uh, one of the other things that I think is interesting just about the band in general, and we'll hear it play out in song after song, famously talked about anytime you talk about the Pixies, is the quiet, loud, quiet thing. That the songs have the... Quiet, oftentimes quiet intro, 
And then the chorus comes in banging with huge drums and noisy guitars. And then it gets quiet again. And that was the sound that made this band one of Kurt Cobain's idols. And that when Smells Like Teen Spirit was being released, the band was basically like, yeah, this is pretty clearly a Pixies ripoff and people are going to call us out on this. And, you know, some critics did, but it became a formula that worked for the alternative era and nobody does it better than the Pixies. They actually have a DVD, a concert DVD called Loud, Quiet, Loud. I have it somewhere. It's said so. both. Yeah. <laughs> you'll hear it what, loud, loud, you'll hear it quiet, loud, quiet. But yes, it amounts to the same thing and it is their defining sound. Shall we go into the tracks or is there anything else that you'd like to speak about in general? I'm sure we'll get back to some of these individual points as we go through, but uh, yeah, let's jump right into it. Okay. So the album starts off with track one, Debaser. This song comes out swinging. Like, this is a warning shot across the bow. This is what the Pixies are. And again, it is that loud, quiet, loud thing. And it is a banger. It also gives you everything that you want in a Pixies song. Let's hear some of it. All right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, from those very first bass notes, I just got sucked in immediately the first time I heard this. Yeah. Uh, this is Kim doing that uh, Kim bass. It isn't the most complex on earth because it doesn't have to be. It's groovy. It's energetic. And it, it gets loud real quick. Yeah. So Charles Thompson, Black Francis, the lead songwriter while he was in college at Amherst, he discovered surrealism, specifically films of David Lynch and Luis Buñuel. Am I saying his name right, Scott? It's got the tilde, so Buñuel. Buñuel, okay. A lot of that influence, I think, has come out, obviously in this song, but in his lyric writing in general, he kind of has this philosophy that the lyrics really don't have to mean anything, which, as you know, is as an art professor, is like core of surrealism, right? That it doesn't have to have a specific meaning. It's endlessly frustrating, though. And we're going to get that on some of these tracks as we keep going, that, okay, what the hell does this song mean? And anytime an artist just says, I don't know, I just... Th just threw some stuff down there. It doesn't have to mean anything, but it's like, yeah, but you chose these specific words in this specific order, so I'm not sure I believe you. And in the case of Debaser, yeah, this is a series of references to a Buñuel and Salvador Dali film, uh, Un Chien Andalou, which wasn't was too French for Charles's taste, so he changed it to Unchain Andalusia. By the way, one thing on Black Francis. 
on Charles. Uh, I've always wondered, listening to his albums, what's with all the Spanish? He does not strike me by looking at him and his name as being a particularly Spanish guy. And this was the classic guy who went away for a semester abroad. And when he came back, everything had to be Spanish. Yep. Yeah. He went to Puerto Rico. Yeah. And so um, made the French Chien Andalou into Chien Andalusia and throws in references to that uh, movie, uh, Slicing Up Eyeballs. I want you to know that is one of the more famous shots from this dreamy series of unrelated, weird imagery that was this movie. Plotless, wordless, and oftentimes disturbing imagery. Uh, Ants pouring out of a hole in a human hand. A man sitting next to his wife who turns over to her and slices her eyeball open with a razor blade. And, okay, he was using imagery that didn't mean anything in particular, and yet, that's what he went with. Black Francis, he likes the violent imagery. He likes the grotesque, the disturbing, and that happens throughout this album. Sex and death, those are the two themes that we're just going to keep coming back to for every song. Now, you know what I did find that I didn't know? Please. Okay, so the original lyric for this was not on Shen Andalusia. It was Shed Apollonia. That is an apocryphal tale. You you don't think it's it's not accurate? I've seen it said, and I've seen it. I've seen others say we're not sure that's actually true. But I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead and say no, it. No, no, that that's okay. Yeah. So apparently he had watched Purple Rain, and this, you know, where Apollonia is taking her clothes off, where she's going to cleanse herself in the waters of Lake Maranca. Yes, but <laughs> uh, so shed Apollonia, meaning shed your clothes. But yeah. I mean, I hope it's true because it's an important scene in cinema history. Yeah. <laughs> they both hope. are. They both are. Right. Right. Okay. And, you know, uh, deb- about the title of the song itself, Debaser, Charles said, I guess it means one who debases, a debaser. It was an attempt to introduce a new word into the lexicon, but I don't think it's been successful, else I would have heard about it. Now, that's actually kind of funny. Yeah. So, Pixies, for me, like, 80, 89, 90, 91, 92, people weren't familiar with them. So, it was like a, a, like a secret handshake or like, you know, a, a secret club that you belong to. And I remember I, okay, don't make fun of me. It was at an RPG. Um, <laughs> we were playing Chronicles of Amber. And I don't know, somebody said something about when I grow up, I want to be something. And and this guy across the table from me says, when I grow up, I want to be a debaser. And he and I have been friends ever since. I mean, like friends for life. It's like we we can tell each other, you know, from that line, just that, that I got it and that he got it. But I, I'm just... rambling. I'm rambling. I'm rambling. No, no, it's all right. There's plenty to ramble about. And again, we've already gone well over the length of the song, but I'm going to make it just a little bit longer with with a quote that I really enjoyed. Again, what do the lyrics mean? If it's a song that's riffing on a surrealist film, okay, we can believe it doesn't mean anything. But it is a song, uh, a question that has been asked to uh, Joey Santiago, and I love his answer. 
I have no idea what he was singing about, and I didn't want to know either. It was the same throughout Doolittle. I'd catch a word here and there, but it was almost like I was intruding on his privacy. If I'd asked him what it was all about, he'd probably just tell me to shut up and play something. <laughs> ah, that's the kind of friendship that they had, right? Apparently, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't seem like the easiest guy to work with. Uh, no, I, I no. He 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 has a reputation for being a little bit difficult. But yeah. then again, I think most of the good artists are. So, two things that just stick out for me in this one. Number one, the way that Charles screams that scream. He has the best scream in all of rock and roll. And I will throw down anybody that says otherwise. All right, I will throw down against you. I just I can't even imagine how he can do that without shredding his vocal cords. Yeah, the screams and the screeches, and it is not a classically pretty voice, but it is expressive as all get out, and he can make noises with it. <laughs> and then in contrast, we have Kim singing on the backup vocals, and she has this just sweet, angelic voice. You know, I mean, she's got kind of like this girl-next-door vibe about her. So there's like a contrast there. We're going to see that in a lot of the songs, the contrast between the two vocal styles. For sure. Yeah. So, hey, now speaking of Charles's screams, mm -hmm. this next one, Tame. Oh, we got to listen to this one, Scott. Absolutely. So that was Tame, and the sound engineer, Jonathan Claude Fixer, said that Charles was screaming so loudly on this song that he had to keep telling him to back up, back up, back up from the mic until he was on the opposite wall. <laughs> yeah, and talk about Quiet Loud Quiet. Uh, this one definitely has it. It is also David, the drummer's favorite song on the album, just because it's fun to play. It's full of angst, kind of punky, even though it's a slightly odd time. It's quick and moving, so I got to go all out on it. The lyrics to this one are hilarious. I'm making good friends with you when you're shaking your good frame. Fall on your face on those bad shoes. <laughs> and the whole idea of tame, and I apologize, I don't know who this quote is attributed to, but right. when I was reading, was reading their biography, the meanest sentiment Charles Thompson could think up, a contemptuous sexual insult calling a woman tame ouch that, that's kind of insulting yeah <laughs> nobody better call me tame I've never heard it said about you <laughs> <laughs> but then you know the ending of this song where we've got Tim and we've got Charles and they're both kind of breathing very heavy and it's like orgasmic that's the only word I can use to describe that it's really kind of like wow yeah, I, I got nothing to add to that, but uh, yeah, rhythmic breathing for the win. <laughs> <laughs> 
that is that track is a minute 56 long and so i don't know that we have to say all that much more about it especially when coming up next you have one of the huge songs of the pixies career wave of mutilation this one. Oh man yeah all right well uh what do you have to say about wave mutilation well besides the fact that this is one of my favorite pixie songs apparently this was inspired by a series of murder suicides in japan where like a japanese businessman would take his family in the car and drive off a pier and kill everybody yeah and that's that line you'll think i'm dead but i'll sail away and then it's like this underwater fantasy where he's kissing mermaids, riding the El Nino. Yeah, Black Francis told uh, Esquire, as I was reading, uh, it references the El Nino streams and weather patterns, and there are contemporary references in it, but they're all there to kind of serve this nautical state. Water going up and down and moving across the earth, and the churning up of organic material turning into rock, water turning into clouds. Like the Yoko Ono song says, we are all water from different rivers. So it starts with this Japanese businessman driving my car into the ocean thing and then gets a little more global and starts to touch on some of the ecological themes, environmental themes that happen throughout this album as well. So there's another version of this song. It's called the UK Surf Mix that was in the movie Pump Up the Volume with Christian Slater. It's been in a number of things and it's a very different treatment. Yeah, I don't care for it. It's too slow for me. Well, I mean, so... As we've said, and we'll say again and again about this album, the quiet, loud, quiet, or if you prefer loud, quiet, loud thing that is the Pixies hallmark does not happen in the UK surf version. It's quiet, quiet, quiet. It's a sleepy, sort of dreamy version of it. It's relatively soft and mid-tempo, and it never really bangs. But one of the things that the Pixies, and it's because of Joey Santiago's guitar playing style, are in a way a postmodern surf band. Yes. And that song, along with a couple on this album, really do sort of highlight that fact that there is a line from Dick Dale to Joey Santiago, and sometimes it don't have to be noisy. And that surf sound really does come out in the two albums after this, Bossa Nova and Trump Lamont. Yeah. The only other thing I found about this one, Scott, that I didn't know is that Gil Norton supposedly stacked 10 of Charles's lead vocal tracks together. I'm willing to believe that. Yeah. This is where the uh, production uh, production money really does kind of shine through. It is a polished song, although a banger. And this is one that I'm trying to convince my, uh, my band to play. Uh, they're not as big Pixie fans as I am, but uh, I, I think I'm going to win this one. All right. Shall I introduce the next? Please. Okay. 
So next up, we have track four. It's called I Bleed. start off by saying scott with this one yeah i just read an interview with pj harvey where she said that this was one of her favorite songs i couldn't believe that yeah it's got a really unusual rhyme scheme it's like a a b c b d d it's really peculiar for a song i mean lots of things about this that are peculiar but the rhyme scheme (laughs) very unusual this is another one of those where I've read the quotes, uh, what's it about? And Charles tries to play off this song as not having any meaning, at least in the beginning. In the first few verses, there's no topic whatsoever. All it is is just a rhyme structure. And he cites that uh, A, A, B, C, B, D, D that you just did. Uh, it's all very automatic. And it's like, yeah, but but you did choose these words. Like, it wasn't just... <laughs> random rhyming words it was these and the endlessly frustrating but the rest of it is about arizona uh there's a very famous cliff dwelling there with two or three story houses about a mile up it's about 900 years old and you can still see the handprints from the people who pressed the plaster into the walls and you can take your hand and place it in it in the print and it's all very woo there's a place in the buried west in a cave with a house in it in the clay the holes of hands you can place a hand in hand. That's what that was, yeah? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and in the aforementioned uh, Ben Cesario's 33 and a third on Doolittle, Charles just said of it, I was just a slave to the rhythm. Grace Jones reference. You're right. You're right. <laughs> uh, it's not particularly enlightening, but it is certainly an interesting and evocative song. And again, that quiet, that bass at the beginning him doing that uh the quiet part of the quiet loud quiet and it's a great song i don't really have a whole lot more to say about it i want to talk a little bit more about kim's bass please do all right so kim deal as listeners to the podcast probably have already heard me gushing about her she's absolutely my idol i absolutely adore her I, the first time I ever saw her, I was just like, just completely blown away because, I mean, here's this woman. I mean, she's not using sex to sell herself. It's not about, you know, appearance or anything. She's just very genuine. You know, she's just very down to earth. You know, she could, you know, usually has a cigarette hanging out of her mouth, but she's just, I, I don't know how to explain it. In jeans and a black t-shirt with a cigarette cigarette hanging out of her mouth, just playing the bass like a badass. Yes, absolutely. And so she's actually the reason that I picked up the bass. And one of the first two songs I ever learned is on this album, and we'll talk about it when we get to that. But yeah, Kim is absolutely one of my personal heroes. 
yeah, Kim's about as cool as they come. It was great to get to see her at Riot Fest last year. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, no, it, she was great at Riot Fest. She had a, a Jean-Luc Picard shirt on. What? Yeah, I'm like, okay, she's a, she's a nerd like us. Yeah, you'd think I would notice that. Cool. Oh, I noticed. <laughs> all right, so you want to take the next song? Yes, uh, track five, the second single from the album, Here Comes Your Man. Okay. Classic, strange, kind of discordant opener, just this huge chord. And I was trying to figure out what is this chord? And I was reading forums where guitar players were debating about it. And the best they could come up with is it's the Hendrix chord. And it's evocative of the opener of Beatles, A Hard Day's Night. But near as anyone can tell, it's at least two guitars playing two different chords, which is why it's kind of hard to tell what's going on there. Yeah. So one track, he was playing a 12 string Rickenbacker and then the other string, uh, other track, he was playing a Telecaster. Right on. Man's got good taste in guitars. Yes, he does. It's big. It's jangly. And it tells you this is going to be the big pop single. But. Also, not your ordinary big pop single. This is definitely the most pop of the entire Pixies catalog, I would say. Uh, there's it's, no it's, screams. There's no screams. Yeah, they don't they scream. scream. Yes. Um, And yeah, Kim's angelic singing when she does come in. Interesting thing, though. It is their poppiest pop song. Also, originally, not a pop song. This was one where the band kind of had to go toe-to-toe with Gil Norton, producer. Uh, It was originally a country song. Well, you can kind of hear a little bit of country in it. A little bit. But uh, Gil Norton turned it into a pop song, and the band, Joey in particular, was not entirely thrilled about it. But it did succeed. It went to number three on the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart. And because of that alternative, credible rock band thing. It also became a song that they almost never played in concert because you don't play the big pop hit. You play the noisy, aggressive song instead. And so this was not one you're going to hear from them very often. All right. So this video got a lot of airplay on MTV. And as you mentioned, this was their biggest hit. And I think if people bought this album expecting the entire thing to sound like there comes your man they were sorely disappointed yeah although there's a couple other points in there where you get some of that poppiness uh so a little little red meat for the pop crowd interestingly watch the video for this one i had forgotten i remember when it was playing on mtv in the 120 minutes era 
by the looks of it, it's got an almost psychedelic thing. Very bright colors the band is dressed in. Uh, lens distortion to create this sort of almost hallucinogenic effect. But, notably, the band is not lip-syncing to the lyrics. They just either look stone-faced at the camera without opening their mouths or just open their mouths wide while the words are going and don't move them at all. And it's kind of making fun at the artifice of the whole music video industry. And it's simultaneously hilarious and off-putting. You mentioned like the different camera angles and lenses and stuff like that. I must have been watching this video when my mother was in the room and she concluded because of the camera angles that they're all midgets. And to this day, nothing that I can tell her will convince her otherwise. She thinks they're called the Pixies. They're a bunch of midgets. Hi, mom. I, I heard nomenclature is little people, Lori's mom. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Uh, the other part, um, this song did appear on the Purple Tape, their very first demo compilation from early in their, their first release. The version on that is not as different as you would think. It's raw, it's not as slick, but still all the pieces are there, and it is still a catchy-as-hell song. And I, I believe I read that this originally was a song that uh, Charles wrote as a teenager and that he had in his back pocket for many years. And I did read that Gil Norton insisted that he had to write a third verse because it was not long enough for a pop song. Right? Yeah. And the band did not really like the song. Uh, in the end, they referred to it as the Tom Petty song. <laughs> okay. All right. No diss, Tom Petty. I enjoy your work. <laughs> okay, so then, if somebody who bought this tape or bought this album, expecting the whole thing to sound like that, and we go from Here Comes Your Van to this next one, which had to be like a jolt of adrenaline to the system here. This yeah. Is, or may maybe not. I don't know. Maybe This is dead. You know, one of the things that I love about the Pixies, they're post-punk for intelligent people. A lot of their songs are based off of mythology. There's a couple songs on this album that are coming from the Old Testament, and this is one of them. This is actually the biblical story of David and Bathsheba. I mean, it even begins, you crazy babe, Bathsheba, I want you. And if you remember, or if you, you know, ever read the Old Testament, David had spotted Bathsheba and she was married to Uriah, but he wanted her, he seduced her and knocked her up. Then David was afraid that Uriah 
the Hittite would find out, you know, that uh, it wasn't his baby. And so David ordered Uriah into basically the thick of battle. He was a soldier. Off to the front you go. Yep, and uh, had him killed. Charles Thompson said, it's kind of his downfall. He goes from being a great person who's respected by everyone, being spiritual and close to God, to being a murderer, a rapist, and out of control. It's all just tainted. It's toxic, the whole thing. But there's lust involved. That's the spark. So remember I said earlier, sex and death. Yep. We got them both here in spades. Uh, from Black Francis himself uh, in the NME April 1989 issue, dead is a metaphor for sex reduced to the most basic. Ugly, bad lust with equally bad results. That line right before the bridge, hey, your lovely tan belly is starting to grow. So that, that must reference the pregnancy then. Yep. So. I like this one. It's an unusual. It's got some changing time signatures in a few places. And the screeching guitars. It's this piercing, stabbing guitar line. <laughs> Melodic uh, hum-along song, It Is Not. <laughs> yeah, I have in my notes it switches back and forth from 6-4 to 4-4 four, four times, so. I'll believe it. Yeah. Do you want to take the next song? Right. Next song is, again, in stark contrast to the sort of uh, abrasive and uh, aggressive tone and sound of Dead. This is another one of the sweet pop songs from the Pixies, a rarity, uh, but definitely got people to buy the album. It is Monkey Gone to Heaven. This is the first song I ever heard by the Pixies, Scott. I saw the video one night on Postmodern on MTV. Yep. And I fell in love immediately. And I went out the next day and I bought the cassette tape. Yeah, this was uh, released a month before the album. It was the first single. And actually, curiously, Monkey Gone to Heaven, the single had photos of a monkey um, 4AD had an amazing art department and the designers decided that the iconography was powerful enough that they were going to use that then to become the, or to make that the whole art direction for Doolittle, which has just an amazing look and feel to it. It's got the metallic copper, uh, border. It's got the photographs, but that are reduced to a sort of screen printing look. It's got... Images juxtaposed, and if you flip through the booklet of the CD, uh, each song has its own artistic composition, uh, graphic design composition, and Monkey Gone to Heaven is the cover image for the album. Doolittle 
It's a monkey. It's got the halo. It's got this incredibly complex grid system to it. Like the designers went all out and really thought this one through. So that's where the art direction for the album comes from. And that was Vaughn Oliver, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I, his artwork is amazing. And he's done a lot of work for uh, bands on the 4AD label. I think he's even got a coffee table book out of his artwork. I've been trying to get my hands on it. But yeah, his his artwork's just absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. And they did not uh, just throw the graphic design money at it musical production-wise. This is one that they pulled out all the stops. Uh, notably, there is uh, cello and bass that appears a little later in the song. Interesting story on how that came about. It's a fun one, actually. You mentioned earlier that Kim is unusual in her bass playing and that she uses a pick. And at one point in the studio... She was just messing around, had her pick in hand, and was plucking at the strings of a piano that was open. And Gil, uh, Gil Norton, the producer, heard it, and he's like, I like where this is going, and ended up bringing into the post-production house for the mixing session, brought in a uh, string quartet, or rather four string players that were sometimes employed in this studio, and they hadn't written out a violin part or cello part or bass part for the song, but the musicians heard what the song had going, and they're like, yeah, we can work with this. And uh, three out of four of those musicians did end up performing on the record. Fourth one, credited, but they sent her home. She is on the album credits, but she didn't actually play, and I got to feel like that's probably a gut punch. So... This was the first single off the album, as you mentioned, and it was also the band's first major label American release. It only reached 98 on the Billboard Hot 100, which really kind of, I think, speaks again to the kind of underground nature, you know, the idea that the, these guys weren't big. Their influence for other bands was where they're notable. It's a yes, but they did get to number seven on the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart. So they weren't a pop sensation, even though this was another one of their particularly poppy songs, but they weren't that kind of a band. They weren't in 1989 trying to compete with the actual pop artists of the time. New kids on the block, they are not. Oh. They were always going to be the musician's band, the underground band. They were going up the alternative charts. They didn't really need the pop charts so much. And... If they had gotten number seven on the actual Hot 200 or something, they probably would not have been a band that Nirvana was emulating. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. So, you know, again, with the lyrical themes, references to mythology, you know, the very beginning, we have the god Neptune getting crushed by 10 million pounds of sludge from New York and New Jersey. The whole thing's really kind of a commentary on how we've completely trashed the planet. Creature in the sky got sucked through a hole. Now there's a hole in the sky. Particularly concerned about the hole in the ozone layer back then. And there's also a reference to Hebrew numerology. That whole man is five, the devil is six, God is seven. And that's something that Charles picked up from, he said, Hebrew numerology. So. Right, it's funny because he is an educated guy. Even when he is just making nonsense lyrics, they're not nonsense because he's educated. He studied uh, anthropology at Amherst. Yes. Um, so he's well-read. That said, even by his own admission, this is kind of some half-assed numerology. Yes, uh, if the devil is uh, five. Uh, man is five. Then the man devil is five. Six. The devil is six. Then is seven. 
Uh, and he said himself that he just liked the idea. He went with it. He heard that man was five, that uh, God was six, that the devil is seven. But he didn't do any research to ascertain whether that was actually numerologically accurate in any sort of uh, Hebrew theology. And he liked it because heaven and seven rhymed. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well, all right. So one of the things that I find interesting about this in the context of the quiet, loud, quiet thing is how the mechanics of that actually work in this particular track. And if you listen to Joey Santiago's guitar work, he actually isn't playing during the verses. And that's why it gets so quiet, because he's kind of a noisy guitar player sometimes. When it comes into the chorus, though, bam, it comes in like a ton of bricks. Yeah. My last thought on this one, Blender Magazine has called the song the first grunge ballad. Interesting. You know, as far as the rap song from a credible rock band that turned some people off, the old school fans, because they'd gone soft, it's still a pretty damn good song that does manage to rock plenty hard. And you could do a lot worse with bands, uh, I'm making the finger quotes, selling out. <laughs> well, shall we move on to the next one? Well, yes, let's. Okay. Now, this is actually the end of side one. We had to flip the tape over to side two. That's one last point then, before we get to that. Song seven, back in the day, the seventh song on the album was oftentimes the big song, the best song, and Monkey Gone to Heaven. It's track seven. Just saying. Okay. So we flip the tape over. Side two, the first song is called Mr. Greaves. Hope everything is all right. Hope everything is all right. fun one i i like this one it's uh, it, it changes very quickly though doesn't it it does uh it does have that sort of old school country western banger aspect to it at points so in the previous song we had neptune getting crushed by sludge this one starts off his only daughter is dead what's that floating in the water old neptuna's only daughter well it is one of the songs that Charles drops some literary references. It's also the song that gives us the title of the album. And I believe in Mr. Greaves, pray for a man in the middle, one that talks like Doolittle. You may remember the uh, old movie Dr. Doolittle where he could talk to the animals or the, I'm going to say, unfortunate Robert Downey Jr. remake. But uh, classic <laughs> story for the kids and... People will try to ascribe different meanings to this song, and um, is Mr. Greaves death? Well, Charles Thompson said that in an interview with NME in 1989. He says, Mr. Greaves is the death character of mythology. And there we go. 
And then he went on to say, to explain some of the lyrics, he said, got bombed, got frozen, nuclear winter, got finally off to finally dozing, become part of the fossil record, the eternal doze, giving the planet over to the next group of folk who will rule. Nice. I The one quote that I saw from him that sums it up in a single line, it's about the end of the world, I guess. <laughs> Sex and death. Sex and death. Yeah, he knows what he likes. All right. What's next? Oh, next up, you want to talk about short songs? This, I believe, is the shortest song on the album, coming in at 124. It is Crackety Jones. Not only the shortest song, but the fastest, loudest, and most musically aggressive song on the album. 150 beats per minute. Boy, you could just feel the sweat coming off of David Lovering as he's uh as he's beating the drums there. Yep. It is a weird one, also. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about for the longest time. This is one that I've learned a lot about uh in the research for this particular episode. Okay. We talked earlier that Charles spent six months in Puerto Rico as part of a student exchange program. Jose Jones, Crackety Jones of the song title, uh, was his roommate. And he was, let's see, what is the quote here? A a crazed roommate, uh, a weird psycho gay roommate, according to Charles. So the guy's name wasn't really Jose Jones, apparently, but um, apparently he was on some serious drugs and talked like a mile a minute and heard voices in his head. So there, there may be some mental illness, possible schizophrenia going on here. And one of the voices that he apparently heard in his head was Fred Flintstone. Yeah, but that would do, baby. Now, your Spanish is much better than mine, Scott. Apparently, Fred Flintstone is known in Spanish as Pedro Pica Piedra. I have never actually watched uh, the Flintstones in Spanish, but that checks out. Okay, all right. So that reference to Paco Pica Piedra is one of the voices in his head. That's Fred Flintstone. Yeah, and it has a uh, it has a crazy feel to it. This song, it's uh, yeah, that frenetic energy. That you can kind of feel that crazy roommate talking to you at 150 beats a minute. This song just makes me want to jump into a mosh pit. It just... <laughs> there, there needs to be some serious slam dancing going out of this song. When was the last time you actually got into a mosh pit? Uh, shit. Naked Raygun. That is maybe... Maybe about 10, 11 years ago. But right. uh, I, I ended up taking a knee to the nose. And then I had a bandage on my nose for a while. So that's when I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. Why? How about you? 
Oh, it's been a long time. Uh, that was a decision made some time ago, uh, probably in the early 2000s, I'll say. Um, <laughs> but uh, further reinforced by my next door neighbor relatively recently getting into a mosh pit and just having her knee absolutely taken out. Um, oh. Yeah, so we're getting too old for this shit. Yeah, so we just kind of do it in our minds, right? Exactly. Uh, but this is great, about as uh, great a song to mosh to as you could hope for. Yeah. And back in 89, I was still uh, still capable of uh, holding my own in a mosh pit. Yeah, nowadays, not so much. Yeah, you had the boots for it, too. Oh, I did, yeah. The steel <laughs> toes, you remember those? I do. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's about enough about Crackety Jones. Speaking of Crackety... You can edit. You can edit that out. Wait, <laughs> or not? Or not? All right. All right. Track ten. You want to talk sweet pop songs? Uh, here you go. La la, love you. fun one i love this one and this is david lovering the drummer singing the lead vocal in a 50s crooner style they really poured on the frank sinatra for this one well apparently they had to give him five beers to get him in the mood for it and tons of tracks uh he was not a singer they had to talk him into doing it in the first place really? uh, like francis wanted david lovering to sing it and he was reluctant and self-conscious about it uh and they did a ton of vocal takes he got more confident as they went, and we can probably chalk that up to the drinking. <laughs> well, now that surprises me because, I mean, granted, it had been a few years and he probably got comfortable with it, but uh, several times that I've seen Pixies live, they've opened with this song. He got comfortable with it while they were recording it, but uh, it took some uh, convincing. Yeah. So charles wrote this one as well and he said that in a vague way it's mocking popular music because it's like saying okay we've got this nice little chord progression what's the lyrics la la love you it's not even, <laughs> it's not even subtly mocking it this is a full-on satire of a love song like they really nail down the this is a satire thing the lyrics when you break it down are yeah i love you i do all I'm saying, pretty baby, la la, love you, don't mean maybe. And then they really nail it with first base, second base, third base, home run. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is about as tongue-in-cheek as a love song comes. I was reading that some people have actually used this for their wedding song. Yeah, some people use some pretty crazy shit for their wedding songs, though. That's true. That's true. I remember way back in the day, uh, Sting lamenting that people were using every breath you take as their wedding song and he's like it's a fucking evil song 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is one that actually feels like a surf track. The surf guitar really oh, yeah. comes over here, and it's Joey Santiago just doing a nice, easy-going surfy pop song, which you don't see enough of. And also, it's got the whistling. The wolf whistle, yeah. There are a few ways to uh, make sure your song gets people singing along with it or whistling along with it, and that's a you put the whistle part in it. It's a fun one. Uh, yeah, the wolf whistle and uh, the song, simple and mocking the simplicity of love songs, pop love songs in particular, but it manages to make it catchy enough that you want to believe. There you go. We can believe it for two minutes and 43 seconds. If you don't want to hear the Pixies doing a semi-conventional love song, well, don't worry, it's over quickly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, should we move on to number 13, baby, or you got more for La La Love You? No, number 13, baby, it is. All right. Oh, this is one of the songs that I fell in love with the first time I heard this album. I, everybody did. Question, how many people out there do you think have a tattooed tit that says number 13 on it because of this song? I almost did. I, matter of fact, I think I told you I was going to do it, but I didn't. And I told you at the time, I personally have one friend who did. Okay. Well, well you know, I, I didn't realize it at the time. But when I was reading Hunter S. Thompson, his book on the Hell's Angels, apparently that's a very common tattoo for women in the Hell's Angels. Or biker culture. In yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and the song was actually inspired by a street gang. Viva La Loma Rica was the name of the street gang. And right. so Charles says the song is sort of about having the hots for a lowrider chick. Viva La Loma Rica was a gang that was around at the time, I think. And that's that in, in the chorus, you know, don't want no blue eyes, La Loma. I always wondered what the hell he was talking about there. It's the hill. And some people have said maybe it's another tit reference and that the hill is a, you know, breast. But that yours makes way more sense. Yeah, but, you know, it could be total bullshit. <laughs> Which is what I think is happens a lot in these interviews. Uh, I, I think he's maybe not a totally reliable narrator. That said, with the biker tattoo thing, the symbolism behind it, the number 13, the 13th letter, M, and that M stands for marijuana. Oh, see, now I didn't know that. We're learning things today. Maybe. I don't know. But, okay, six-foot girl. This woman is a fucking Amazon, man. <laughs> <laughs> How tall is Frank Black? 5'8". 
That would be a hell of a couple. Yeah. Yeah. So the second half of this song, like pretty much the last two minutes, is just this beautiful, gorgeous instrumental. There's these layers of guitars and there's Kim's bass in the background. You know, she's got a very distinctive, bouncy way of playing the bass, but it just all comes together so beautifully. And when I was in high school and I was trying to get my friends into the Pixies, this is the song I would play for them. Fine choice. And it's another one. Black Francis's voice is just weird. You got one of the best whines in rock. Can go toe to toe with Billy Corgan and actually win in the who (laughs) who whine screams better in a rock song. And Black Francis, I, I think, is the best when it comes to that. It is not a conventionally beautiful voice, and it's not conventionally melodic singing, but he yells, he screams, he whines, and this song, uh, you know, it's talk singing at times, but uh, he sells it. Yes, he does. Next track is the 12th track, and that is There Goes My Gun. Okay, so if I was busting a little bit on La La Love You, and really the Pixies and Charles in particular were busting on pop love songs in La La Love You, the lyrical effort that went into There Goes My Gun, I'm not saying he phoned it in, but if you were looking for deep meaning in this song, you have four lines to choose from you who there goes my gun look at me friend <laughs> or foe that's your whole song now once again it only has to take you through one minute and 50 seconds of song but uh yeah not breaking the bank lyrically here really has a very kind of like cowboy western feel to it yeah and Kim is playing a super simple but compelling bass line. Yes. Joey doing the surf guitar thing. It doesn't have to say much. The yelling of friend or foe and doing a call and response with himself. That's just uh that's just a fun lesson. Yeah, no, it is a lot of fun. Now that there's all that much to say about this track, it speaks for itself. We'll just let it do that. What? All right. Do you know what's next? I believe I do. Hey. (laughs) That's not me trying to get your attention. That is literally track 13. Hey.
Oh my God, where to start with this one? Okay, so this is one of the first two songs that I learned to play on the bass. The other one being No Love Lost by Joy Division. Good. And God, this, I don't know what it is. This song, not lyrically, musically, this song is so sexy. Now, lyrically, it's absolutely not sexy. Uh, Pixie's biographer, Ben Cesario, described it as a Hieronymus Bosch canvas of flesh. Yeah. Yeah. And sexy in a horrifying sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the songs where uh, horrors figure prominently into the lyrics. Uh, There must be a devil between us or horrors in my bed, horrors at the door, horror in my bed. Before they got talked into changing it, Horrors was going to be the name of this album. And Charles's father uh, was pushing Horrors as the best title they had. But I think thankfully for history, they went with Doolittle instead. His father sounds like an interesting character. (laughs) All right. So, like, lyrically, I like the uh, right? Uh, said the man to the lady. Uh, said the lady to the man she adored. And the horrors like a choir go uh all night. And then eventually it's the same sound that the mother makes when the baby breaks. Right? Yeah. So it's sex and death again. But you had a story about the recording of this, didn't you? Yeah. All right. So this was the track on the album that was recorded live, which is to say the band were all playing all of their takes at the same time. And the studio they were playing at was not big enough to accommodate all of them. And they wanted to isolate Black Francis's vocals. And if he was singing in the same room as the rest of the band, then they'd get bleed over in the tracks. And so they stuffed him into a broom closet. Uh, Not big enough for him to play with the guitar in the standard sort of sideways to diagonal position. He had to play it up against his body. He was crammed into the broom closet while the rest of the band was playing in the studio. I believe they did go back and overdub Kim's vocals because she was getting bleed from David's drum. So I think that's the one part that wasn't done live. I'll believe that. Yeah. And it has that feel of a well-rehearsed band who play well together. Gil, uh, the producer, Gil Norton, it's his favorite song on the album. And as he describes it in interviews, this was the band at their best, and you can kind of feel in the song the members of the band looking at each other, playing off each other, working just as a single unit together, and that give and take of a band at their prime. And and this really harkens back, I think, to like older pixie stuff you know surfer rosa or come on pilgrim era i mean it really it has that same kind of vibe to it charles regards this as the pixies only r&b song there's a quote that he told esquire and i love this basically it's our slow jam r&b song or our version of that i guess i don't think we were trying to do that it just sort of came out naturally i suppose it's a relationship song it's not really my own history but distilled or culled from ancient stories of my parents when they were younger Things I heard uh, or rumors loosely based on that kind of stuff. All right. So we have two songs left. 
The next one is called Silver, and this one's a little bit unusual because we have Kim Deal on slide guitar and we have drummer David Lovering on bass. Let's listen to a little bit of it. This is the only song on this album that Kim shares a writing credit with Charles on. Apparently, she played it at early Breeders gigs, and there's a demo version of her own out there somewhere. This is, for me, Scott, probably my least favorite track on the album. I will agree, and I think there is a reason that it is track 14 of 15. Okay. They will put the tracks that they know are going to be least popular and bury them at the end of the album. But this album doesn't really ever get a chance to drag. Because even Silver, 14th song that might theoretically make it drag, what's it, 2 minutes, 25 seconds? And it is slow, but also still pounds. Funny, you said uh, that David uh, wanted to play bass and Kim was playing slide guitar on it. But when it came time to perform it live, Dave wanted to play the bass because it's a really easy two notes. And nah, you're you're playing drums. So he just got this huge, which apparently uh, they made the thunk that big by using a huge floor tom and then slowing it way down. So it gives it this sort of huge, deep feel. Definitely kind of a, a Western theme to a lot of these songs. Yeah, it, it has a, a rootsy Americana Old West feel to it for sure. What are the lyrics again? In this land of strangers, there are dangers, there are sorrows. Yep. It's whiny. Not outside the uh, Pixies wheelhouse. But I mean, even even by Pixie standards, it's kind of whiny. Yeah. The lyrics are intentionally vague by their own admission. It is telling, I think, that this is the only song, as you said, where Kim shares the co-writing credit. This starts to become a problem for yes. the band. And yes. for Kim in particular. It is not a coincidence that after the tour that followed this album, the Fuck or Fight tour, as it was called, by the Sex end of the tour, again. yep. By the end of the tour, Kim and Charles were no longer speaking to each other. There was apparently an incident in which uh, Charles threw a guitar at Kim on stage. Uh, when the tour wrapped, they did not even attend the after-tour party. And shortly after the album, uh, or sorry, shortly after the tour ended they announced that the band was going on hiatus and this would be the first of a couple uh, major hiatuses for the band. 
and would be just before the Breeders' Era. Yes. Where if Kim was having trouble getting songs past Charles and feeling like she was an equal part in the band, well, what do you do? You take your ball and go home. I'm going to start my own band. With uh, her sister Kelly and Tanya Donnelly. Yeah. Exactly. Where you see, yeah, uh, you will recall from the beginning of all this that Kelly almost became a member of the Pixies from the beginning, but she wasn't confident enough to do it and she wanted to work with her sister. Ta-da! When the Pixies sort of uh, fall apart for a while there, she got her wish. Interesting to think about how the dynamics of the band would have been different if it had been Kim and Kelly and Charles and Joey, because perhaps then maybe maybe it would have balanced out a little bit more. Maybe they would have let Kim do more of the songwriting. Yeah, or Charles's ego might have gotten in the way and they would have broken up earlier. That's a very good point. Very good point. What's fun, I, I mentioned at the beginning of all this, Doolittle 25. It's an easy half-hour video and fun to watch. You'll hear a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about today coming out of their mouths in this video. But to see Joey and David, they're just so easygoing. They're buddies. They're having a good time being rock stars and not the biggest rock stars on earth, but some of the most loved. And you just don't see that ego that you hear so much about in the context of Charles, of Black Francis. I don't know. It just it seems like he became this larger and larger figure and kind of wouldn't let a lot of other creative input happen. And it's a shame, but it gave us three absolutely amazing albums and then some more albums that came later. Didn't David and Joey form a band called The Martinis? I will believe that that is true because you said it and you tend not to make shit up. <laughs> what, what, what were the Martinis like? They Oh, they did a song on... Boy, I want to say it was the Empire Records soundtrack. Hang on a second. What? Yeah. Free on the Empire Records soundtrack. That's the only song of theirs that I know. So then, I think we've said more about Silver than they said in Silver. <laughs> uh, the final track of the album, track 15. Uh, this is Gouge Away. Inspired by Judges chapter 16, the story of Samson and Delilah. Yeah. Um, I would say as good an opener to the album as Debaser was. Yes. How good a closer Gouge Away is. They're perfect bookends, aren't they? Absolutely. The same way that Debaser highlights and showcases everything that makes this band special. Gouge Away does it too. 
and this time does it with another Old Testament story, uh, this time the story of Samson, and to a lesser extent, Delilah. Black Francis told Esquire he thinks it is the best song on the record, and it is also Joey Santiago's favorite song on the album. And it's my favorite song on the album. Of it, uh, Joey said, it sounds like a cool clubby song. You can envision the dark lights, hardly any lights. Um, Yeah, this is just a great song. Yeah. It's a little bit unusual in that the verses are loud and the chorus parts are quiet. The the gouge away, you can gouge away, is very quiet. It's almost whispered. Yep. Oh, oh my God, I love the lyrics so much for this one. Sleeping on your belly, you break my arms and spoon my eyes. Been rubbing a bad charm with holy fingers. And then at the end, change for the pillars, a three-day party. I break the walls and kill us all with holy fingers. So fucking beautiful, man. What a great way to end the album. Yeah, I, I, it showcases Tim's bass. Uh, and you get both of their voices. Like, okay. that is really the strength of this band is Kim's bass, Joey's guitar, and the two voices playing off of each other. And this song gives you it and gives it to you powerful. It is a rocker. Not It's not a rocker with just the slamming you with distortion though like this is groovy and that's thanks largely i think to kim yeah i'll agree i'll agree with that this entire album from start to finish is just absolutely fantastic and when i first heard it from those very first notes of debaser all the way through i had never heard anything like this before it was so completely different from everything that was on mtv everything that was on the radio it just completely changed it. I mean, it was a game changer for me, you know, not just Kim being this just amazing feminist icon and all this kind of stuff. Musically, they went on to influence, you mentioned Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, but they went on to influence a lot of bands that came after and a lot of the grunge movement. So I think that they are, it's a shame that I think they haven't really gotten their due. And it's a shame that they really weren't known as well as they, they should have been. But, I mean, their influences, I, I I guess I'd say they're kind of like the velvet underground of our generation. You know what I mean? It's like their influence can be felt in all of these other bands, even if maybe they didn't necessarily have the mainstream kind of success. Why they didn't really have, their formula didn't really lend itself to that mainstream success. This was a rock band that was playing rock in an era when things were getting increasingly slick and programmed and electronic, rock had really fallen on some harder times by this point, and we weren't quite at the grunge era yet. Nope. Still here, bands. But yeah, they weren't a massively, hugely successful arena rock band, but they were able to sell out shows anywhere they went. And it's a testament to that ongoing success that they can still do that today when they did their reunion tour in what year was it? 2004. 2004? Yep, saw that's them. The first time. that's the first time I ever got to see them. And it... Same. Yes. And again in the 2010s, 2014, I want to say, something like that. Um, they were, t- did, they were t- did you really go see them together at the Aragon? I don't remember if you were with us or not. I don't think... We went together, but I think we ran into each other there. Right, right, right. But 
just such a good show. And they played again at Riot Fest recently. True? Yeah, let me think what year that was. And I think that was after, was that after Kim had left and Paz took over? Okay, so about that. To this day, they can announce a tour and they will sell it out everywhere they go. The people love the Pixies. They will see them anywhere they go. However, to my mind, without Kim in the band, it ain't the Pixies. Yeah, I, I feel the same. And that's not to cast any aspersions on Paz. She's an amazing bassist in her own right. Doubt. Very, very talented. But yeah, it just it doesn't feel like the same band. But I will say every time I have ever seen the Pixies live, they have put on a fucking phenomenal show. Absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Scott, I already said my favorite song on the album was Gouge Away. I'm curious what's your favorite song? For me, it's Wave of Mutilation. That was a close second. It is simple, but it is driving. I want my band to play this one. As I said, I'm going to win that fight. There's a reason that Wave of Mutilation is also the title of the Pixies' best of compilation album. It summarizes a lot of what that band is about. Sex and death. Sex and death. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> around the death time, but sure. All right, so Scott, you're coming back in two weeks for another episode. Nope. Okay, so for you, Doolittle, you heard it the first time and you were like, I fell in love. Yes. This album speaks to me on a fundamental level and will be an important album for the rest of my life. Our next show focuses on one of those albums for me. I already knew the band well, the catalog inside and out, but this album was a game changer for them and catapulted them from very loved synth pop band to one of the biggest bands on earth. The band is Depeche Mode and the album is Violator. I can't wait. That's going to be fun. Visit our website, acceleratedculturepodcast.com. Drop us a line. Let us know what you think. And uh, also find us on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. This is a pleasure. Thank you. It's goodbye for me. And for me.